Patrick and I are from completely different backgrounds and see the world through very dissimilar lenses. Patrick comes from a political family in the US. He worked in finance, served in the military, and is an investor and a risk analysis strategist. I grew up in a commune in Germany and studied literature. I'm a writer and a professor of cultural history in the UK. I am also a coach and I have published some books on the art of self-improvement. In other words, Patrick likes dogs, data, guns, and free markets. I like cats, trees, and yards. Patrick's core interest is systems. Mine is psyches. Patrick says tomato, and I say tomato. But what Patrick and I share is a deep curiosity about other people's perspectives and ways of thinking. We both appreciate nuance and complexity and share a sense of being politically homeless. We also share an interest in looking more deeply at current trends and dogmas and a love of Stoic thought. Both of us have a desire for conversations that are not about point scoring, poking holes into other people's arguments, or converting them to our ways of thinking, but that are based on respect and a genuine wish to learn. So I hope you enjoy our podcast. Morning from Montana, Anna. Good afternoon from Canterbury, Patrick. So we're here to talk about eudaimonia today. What comes up to you when you when you hear that word? When I hear that word, I initially, you know, think about university and studying Aristotle and the Nicomachean ethics. And I think um, it has a, for me, a rich connotation. Um, and I, I, I like the definition of it sort of in today's, you know, um, parlance would be something around flourishing and how Aristotle was trying to take both, you know, Socrates and Plato's ideals of eudaimonia and put it in more of a, a, a manual or a how-to in terms of how to how to achieve this 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 idea of human flourishing in what his perspective was in the ancient world and how about yourself yeah i it's very similar to what you just described i think also of the good life immediately it's very firmly linked with the idea of the good life what is worth pursuing what is worth putting our efforts into and why and mm -hmm. of course it's a highly um, contested concept because everybody would have a really different idea of what makes a life worth living and what makes goals and activities worth pursuing. And I agree with you also that the, you know, sometimes eudaimonia is translated as happiness, but I think that's a very questionable translation because Aristotle was very interested in linking eudaimonia with, um, virtual ethics and with living a virtuous life in harmony with reason. And for him, eudaimonia was all about activity, you know, virtue in action. And mm -hmm. I think happiness doesn't grasp that, you know, happiness is very much about a subjective state of being, and it can also be just a fleeting state But eudaimonia is really about long-term flourishing. It's about, I think, fulfillment. I would also throw fulfillment into the discussion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, and I think the yeah, happiness, because it's one of those um, suitcase terms that we can put too many things into. And in our common lexicon, we sort of say it's a personal feeling. Whereas I think the flourishing concept is flourishing, like you said, in action in the world with others and with yourself in terms of excellence, not just 
um, being content. We sort of think happiness in our content has, has a lot to do with contentment. And I don't think that that's something that Aristotle had much uh, in mind for the idea of this eudaimonia. Yeah. And eudaimonia is also related to self-realization and fulfilling your potential. And it's linked to, I think, altruism as well. It's not just about feeling good, but it's also about doing good, um, acting in a virtuous way. And, and I think happiness doesn't grasp the psychosocial dimension of mm -hmm. that concept. And I think it's interesting that a lot of people are talking about eudaimonia these days. I feel the term is really undergoing a kind of renaissance at the moment. Quite a lot of happiness researchers, quite a lot of psychologists have returned to the distinction between the between eudaimonic and hedonistic well-being. And I, it's also interesting that the two terms are often seen as opposites. You know, you can either aim for long-term flourishing, or you can seek hedonistic, short-lived pleasures. And of course, I think the question is more, more complex because um, they're not as opposed as people may think. And eudaimonic well-being has to have a certain hedonistic dimension. And I think a lot of hedonistic activities can also somehow be related to long-term flourishing in their own way. Not all, not all, of course, you know, mm -hmm. quite a lot of hedonistic pleasure really is very present oriented, whereas we can think of eudaimonic um, well-being as more future oriented. But then again, there always has to be a good balance between taking good care of our future well-being and also trying to enjoy the present moment. Because if we if we reject hedonistic well-being completely, our lives will also be quite quite empty and quite um, sterile and joyless. So it's again, it's about balance, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think well, that's the, the idea of the golden mean, right, from Aristotle in terms of how you look at the balance. And <clears throat> I think, you know, philosophers after Aristotle were trying to answer some of the questions he posed about this. And I, I think it's all about how you talk about and measure those means. I, I don't think there's a, a negative connotation to a, a mix, some hedonism. The issue is that anything taken to the extreme is what uh, Aristotle would have talked about, right? Anything taken to too much of an extreme or too much of a desire for any one activity can overwhelm the others, right? And there were, and then I think the, the Stoics later talked about preferences, right? It's preferable to have delicious food, but it's not a, a, it's not a necessary condition for happiness. It's a preference, right? And I think it's, it's the same with, you know, I think other bodily desires. I, I think people have a mm -hmm. connotation that you're either sort of for all excess bodily desires or you're for none, no, no pleasure. And it's really more of a, a balance where you, you actually prefer to have nice things and you prefer to have nice experiences, but they're not necessary conditions for flourishing. They're just preferred conditions. And that's where I think today and more of the research is around that is if you look at the, the, the what we would call now in modern parlance is the necessary conditions for um, flourishing. 
it's not as much as what people would think in terms of both whether we talk now in the, this is all coming from the western world right <clears throat> a level of material wealth that you can have, have sufficient choices exposure to having you know broadband internet access things like that which is the amount of people having it has, has gone up you know i think you know four or five hundred um, percent in the last 20 years um has given people access to more flourishing right for sure and i think that when you when you look at it it's all about the the balance between that the hedonic and the um what you want to say the eudaimonic pleasures right and there's not necessarily not at odds with each other but you do have to balance them and i think we all see that there's problems on both sides yeah absolutely again as you said it's if you just choose one extreme you will find yourself in a in a bad place but if you mix both up in i think in a way that is quite unique to everyone i think that the kind of proportion of eudonic and um hedonistic well-being that we need will be quite individually different from person to person and i also think that quite a lot of eudaimonic activities can be very pleasurable right so you can get into a flow state for example if you exercise a skill if you actually strive for excellent in a particular area in which you are highly skilled you can lose yourself in you know practicing a sport or playing an instrument or a creative act you can lose yourself and you can lose your sense of time just as you can when you engage in certain you know sensual hedonic activities so i think they're not quite as distinct and easy to pull apart as we sometimes think i mean we tend to look at hedonic well-being as you know you know short-term pleasure hunting and very much related to to bodily pleasures whereas eudaimonic activities tend to be more more about skill and more about virtues more about long-term planning being more strategic about the future taking good care of your body and your mind and these are all good things but i think you do need that mixture and in fact um modern happiness researchers have found that the people who flourish most are the ones who aim for both hedonic and for eudaimonic well-being so we do we do need both to mm-hmm. truly flourish yeah i it reminds me of you know when you look at the discussions that are currently being had about um that are dovetailing this with dopamine research the cheap versus expensive dopamine Right. And I think we get a little caught up because there's expensive dopamine would be the runners high after a, you know, four mile run and cheap dopamine would be looking at videos of people running and you get some dopamine hit from seeing other people do it, but it's not the same as doing it yourself. So that's where I would say like real hedonism when it comes to that, the hedonic part is actually more expensive. It's, I think there's a little bit of a, in, in our culture, there's a little bit too much cheap, you know, uh, hedonic pleasure. And it's the idea of, you know, pornography versus actual physical lust. There's a lot of pornography. There's actually less physical, people having less sex than ever. So there's a, yeah. that's a, so it's actually less hedonistic probably than it was 50 years ago in terms of actual output. But because it's a more available, it's almost more base, right? And, and the, the Greeks are, they would have looked at this and said, that's actually not real. He does. That's just distracting yourself. Right. Whereas 
real hedonism, right, is sort of enjoying that well um, crafted dessert, not eating something from the gas station that's cheap and easy to get. Right. It may give you a short sugar buzz, but it doesn't give you nearly as much pleasure as something that's well crafted. And that's where it's almost like the in the in in the hedonistic camp, there's a break that's happened because of sort of um, our modern abundance. Right. Whereas on the, on the, I think on the eudaimonia side, maybe it's changed us a little, but maybe the the notions of flourishing probably haven't had the same break because it, it involves so much of that future orientation and so much of that discipline. It's more similar to what it was, whereas hedonism's changed because you can get it. You can also get the cheap version of hedonism so readily available, whereas the flourishing is still as difficult as it was 2000 years ago. That's a really interesting thought, Patrick. Um, so the idea that our hedonic pleasures have become cheaper and easier and less fulfilling and kind of less physical, more, you know, virtual and yeah, just just sort of cheapened. It's, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I think there's something to it, you know, because in the past, if you think of the Epicureans and if you think about the great hedonists in history you know they were either kind of Casanova types or, or gluttons mm -hmm. <laughs> or great centralists um, and and nowadays yeah I guess our hedonism takes a, a very different form um, but I'm also really intrigued by the idea of um, eudaimonic pleasures needing effort and work you know that that idea that you have to really work hard for for your rewards for your eudaimonic rewards and i think that's true you know that's still still the same as it always has been um and i wonder whether we've become less willing to to work hard for our mental rewards you know whether there's a kind of impatience that is driving us and uh and a lack of commitment to those long-term pleasures at this point. I, I wonder whether that, that has been researched. Um, and there's, of course, also, I think, the, the broader topic of our culture now having become so fascinated again with the concept of eudaimonia. I think a lot of people feel quite tired of of notions of happiness, you know, quite superficial notions of happiness that can um, that can mean so many things. And and I think there's a lack of satisfaction with with our usual happiness strategies at this point. You know, self realization in a selfish way it doesn't do it anymore for lots of people. And then also the idea of um, not just self-realizing being our main purpose, but also self-optimizing. I think people, a lot of people are becoming a bit tired of the rhetoric around self-optimization and self-realization. And they're looking for, for older concepts that have an ethical dimension to them, you know, that they're, they're anchored in, in um, something that includes the social, not just the self. I think that's probably how I would describe that shift. You know, there is a kind of turn away from the purely isolated self and its enhancement towards looking at the self in more interrelated ways again, you know, seeing us as, as um, interrelated and seeing us part of something bigger and, and 
wanting to get our our meaning from from a more conscious engagement with that bigger part. There's a lot to unpack there, and I would agree with you that I I think um, and it's 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 simple. I think in one way is um, sort of the, the there's a there's a cost benefit, right? So the higher the cost, maybe the larger the benefit, and that dovetails back to the idea of the runner's high, right? Earning that runner's high actually might have more hedonic pleasure, even though there is pain associated with it, right? And I think that's maybe where some of the break happened. Um, Epicureanism had a a lot to do. They thought about virtues. They thought about pleasures. They just thought more about minimizing pain. Whereas I think, you know, some of the um, other philosophers, the Stoics, didn't deny pleasures or they were were preferable. They just didn't focus so much on minimizing the pain side because pain was necessary for life. And I think that's part of the, the message of some of the ancient wisdom is that you're always going to have suffering. That's how you deal with it. But the path through suffering is sort of like what leads you to flourishing. And it's always, and, you know, I know there's a lot of talk that we you probably heard about the marshmallow experiment with young children. They were trying to track their over life. It's hard because it does suffer some from, you know, uh, replicability in social sciences. If they haven't quite been able to replicate the same, but the idea is people who can delay gratification um, even at a young age, seem to be able to continue this over life. And there, so there may be some in, innate preferences on gratification. People who are able to, and it's the same in, in finance, by the way, it's if someone, you know, um, be, people very much rather prefer, you know, a dollar today to a dollar 10 at the end of the month, when that's an incredible rate of return that would place you in the top of all the world if you were able to get, you know, a 10% return per month. But people just are like, ah, I'll just take the dollar today. Because it's sort of um, hyperbolic discounting that we associate, you know, with, with present values, and it's the same. I would say people who are able to look for something, whether it's a goal into the future, and put it in the effort in today, and you may not reach that goal, but you're putting forth this effort. That is sort of what ties into flourishing a lot, right? Or you want to say is because you're able to take a some of the hedonism, you don't want to get rid of all the bodily pleasures today, but you're able to push some of those aside in order to achieve something at a later date. And that is maybe what all of this sort of dovetails back to is, can you take, can you move a little bit of pleasure today into the future to get a compounded more pleasure? And that's, I think one of the, it's probably been around since, you know, humans have been talking about it. And now we just, created better words for it, but it's really the the discounting of future pleasure versus the media. And that's the same, right? Um, the quick sugar fix versus making the dessert. You know the dessert's going to taste better, but it involves effort. I'll just have it. And the other problem is, is obviously we, um, the, uh, the availability is the short circuit in our ability. In the old days, you actually had to make it. There was no readily available dessert. So maybe people had the ability to, um, forecast out better because they knew they had to create it or there wasn't anything. And now we have a lot more um, range of pleasures available to us, including yeah. cheaper ones. Yeah. But even, even the Epicureans weren't in favor of, you know, hunting all kinds of short-term pleasure, you know, because exactly. they also wanted to ensure mm-hmm. the maximum of pleasure. And that also yep. means foregoing some yep. because you want to be a, a bit future orientated, even when pleasure is your core value. You know, you mm-hmm. need to um, think about 
how can you maximize pleasure across your lifespan? And that also means foregoing certain ones that mm-hmm. will diminish pleasure in the long run. So they would not be in favor of the kind of cheap dopamine high highs that you have described, Patrick. And okay. I guess um, another interesting point is also that in order to make sacrifices in the now for the future, we need to be optimistic about the future, right? We need to think that it's worth sacrificing this pleasure in the present moment for my long-term future. That that needs to be based on a hope that this future will be worth it and that it will be good. And I wonder whether there's also a kind of sense of you know, pessimism and uncertainty at the moment so that people do privilege short-term pleasure simply because they don't know what the future will hold. I think there's probably an element of that at the moment as well. What do you think? Well, I mean, I, I may have a little difference. I, I think the world is much more uncertain in the ancient world, but I believe they believe that what they called, you know, bravery was a virtue. So when you, when you're worried about the uncertainty of the future, it's just living in fear. If you live in fear, you're not going to flourish. It's just one of those things you can't, it's, you know, that's, and there's a, there is a, um, I would say something permeating our the Western world today uh, overlay of fear and anxiety, whereas I think in it was much more uncertain and much more riskier back in those days because anything could kill you a cut falling down right there wasn't uh, the wonders of modern medicine available. I think it's maybe a little bit of <clears throat> our own risk analysis is poor because maybe we're we're how we're looking at what the outcome scenarios are and also. There's a, a negative feedback loop associated with social media and the people we talk to. So I think it's if we focused on what you can control and the bravery you can project with the future, you can deal with anything that comes at you, right? Is what the ancient virtues would tell you. And dwelling on those, well, if it if it helps. So if you're if you're a scientist that can make changes that can help, but otherwise living in fear and anxiety is never it's never a uh, even a short term solution. Even the Epicureans wouldn't agree with that, right? And they and they definitely that's I think they're more along, you know, utilitarianism and John Stuart Mill and all that. They came more out of the Epicurean mindset, right? Which is maximal, like you said, pleasure over a lifetime. They were definitely, I think, you know, we we short the word, we call someone who's an Epicurean someone who seeks, but I don't I wouldn't call someone who seeks short-term pleasure an Epicurean because they're actually, I look at people who really develop very complex tastes, Epicurean. And today, I think it's more the the short term versus long term in almost in, in almost everything. And maybe short termism is um, there's some you know you, maybe you have less fear and anxiety, but it also you probably have a less um, interesting and flourishing life. So maybe we need to bring back the concepts of you know bravery in the face of uncertainty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Courage is um is important in in all kinds of different areas. What is also interesting is, of course, the way we distribute pleasure across our lifespan, right? Because mm-hmm. quite a lot of us really work until we're in our sixties or even seventies nowadays, and then when we finally retire, we're so old and we're so tired, and we don't have as much energy and as many desires at that age so that we can't really enjoy our free time um, in the way that we were hoping to. You know, we can't really physically do the things that we 
would be able to do when we're younger. And there's also this interesting kind of cultural way of thinking about the work and then the retirement period, because in a way, a lot of us postpone a lot of pleasures associated with not working until we're very old, right? And that's culturally, it's a it's a peculiar thing mm-hmm. to to actually say, okay, no, when I'm finally retired, then I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Then I'll finally be free. But then we're not in such good physical health anymore. So it's a perhaps um, a choice that is not not always completely wise. The way we distribute our working life and um, plan for our post-work future because there's quite a lot to be said about mixing in more pleasure while we're young enough to be able to enjoy um, rather than really pushing everything into the very distant you know post-retirement future. I, I think I, I would agree and there's there's research obviously that backs that up right that people who are younger take don't take enough vacation, right? As opposed to you know, like you said, back ending all the vacation post sixty five doesn't make sense. Maybe we should work till we're eighty, and just put a lot more vacation spread out of our entire life, and a lot more sabbaticals, and maybe a year off work or four months off work. That's the research would back you up, right? Is saying you're much better off spreading out long breaks in life interspaced rather than trying to backload it all for the obvious reasons that you don't know if you're going to make it there. But also, like you said, your ability to experience both hedonic and eudaimonic pleasures change over your life, right? So if you want, maybe when you're younger, you can focus more on the bodily pleasures because you're able to accomplish more, right? With, with the body. And as you get older, you may switch more towards the mind just as a natural sort of order of things. But if you have to backload it all, you have the problem is maybe you ran out of a certain component of those pleasures along the way. And so I, I would agree. I think maybe a one of the, the maybe the a, a really bad outcome in terms of maybe the way that you know financial planning looks because of compound interest. They always tell young people start young, save a lot, right? And enjoy this lump of money later in life. And, and I think that has sort of, we think that about everything. Oh, I'll compound all these days off and all this pleasure and I'll stack it at the end. The problem is, is I don't think you, you don't get the compound interest effect of on flourishing. And it's a, it's a continual thing. Whereas a lump of money invested when you're 20 is more valuable than when you're 30, but your time is still about the same. So yeah. we, we probably should spread out pleasures more over our life and maybe not worry so much about financial planning because if you're not going to retire, you can actually make some of that money back. Cause all, all of the financial planning models are predicated on retiring. Right. Whereas now there's, there's some there's a lot more people talking about maybe people just won't retire. They'll just work less or they'll take a year off and then work a year and take a year off and work a year, but they won't need to save as much because they'll never actually just stop permanently. That yeah. may be the model for our generation and people younger than us saying you're, you because there, there may not be these government programs around right we know that there's issues in the funding of them so maybe we're going to have to look at life differently and it might actually be better because maybe you'll take a year off every decade and just travel the world or go teach somewhere or volunteer and then come back into the workforce and nobody will look down upon it yeah that would be really ideal 
And I think, you know, this the question of retirement also relates to a psychological tendency we all have, and that's the if-then way of thinking. You know, if I achieve this, then I will be happy. You know, if I finally get the degree, this job, this salary rise, finally find a partner, finally achieve X, Y, and Z, then I will be happy. Quite a lot of us think that way. And we 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 are kind of quite future oriented in in the way we think about fulfillment you know if i have achieved x then i will finally be happy but unfortunately we're all very much programmed to strive and to always look for the next big thing so we we really you know even if we achieve these milestones we've been longing for quite a lot of people don't celebrate them you know they get the promotion that they have been hoping for and working towards for such a long time and they get it and they're barely registered and they think what's next what's next so we also don't really celebrate um big achievements and end the kind of fruit of eudaimonic well-being enough you know i see that in a lot of my clients they they achieve big things to which they have been working towards and they they then just pass on you know they don't want to stand still they think about the next big thing almost immediately so it's the very faustian impulse always to strive for more and to look at the the next challenge um and that that can also be dangerous if we don't if we don't appreciate what our eudaimonic striving actually yields and i think it also that may be a you know an issue more in modern society because of comparison syndrome, right? Because you may say, "Oh, I achieved this," but I've seen you know five hundred people achieve this, and so it's not that important or it's not as special. Whereas if you focus on your internal virtues, as you said, back to the original talk, you're you're perfecting your virtues by working towards these things. You're you're expressing your virtues in your daily life, and even if you don't think that your accomplishments rank near others, it's still an accomplishment. And the virtues are inherent to you. You can work on them even without any, you know, outside societal um, feedback. I think that there's, there's a good element. I mean, and Aristotle talks about that. It's better to sort of be beloved, right. To have others respect and honor you. Um, and so that that's sort of moving the goalpost or having the, okay, now people love me. Oh, I want to be loved even more. But there's also an element to that, that the the avarice of it, right, is always seeking more, which is it, it can be a good component of our worldview is that we want continuous improvement. But when you take it to extremes, it's the same as having too much short-term pleasure. Too much long-term pleasure is the same issue, right? If you're always striving for some distant long-term pleasure goal, but you're never enjoying it along the way, it doesn't make sense either. You're both living out of sync with the natural order, right? Too much short-term or yeah. too much long-term. You probably, it's again, it comes back to the idea of balancing. Absolutely. And there's just been um, the results of a long-term happiness study have been released a couple yeah. of months ago. It's the Harvard study of yeah. adult development. And it's really fascinating because they followed a group of um men from very privileged backgrounds and a group of men from very underprivileged backgrounds over decades. And they looked at- And their kids. What and made, their kids. Yeah. Yeah. And their kids. And they, and they looked at what made them flourish and, and who did well in terms of well-being, physical, mental, and also in their careers. 
And I found something really fascinating and that won't be surprising, but still it's worth mentioning and uh, emphasizing. They found that the people whose mental and physical health was the strongest and who were also the most successful in their careers were the ones who had privileged relationships in their lives. Um, and it's really incredible how important connections are and that they can really actually be very strong predictors of, of our capacity to flourish. And that was the key finding of this, of this decade-long study. You know, relationships are an absolutely essential part of the eudaimonic life. And I do think there's also, you know, a hedonistic dimension to relationships in a way I think the eudaimonic and the hedonistic actually can converge in that terrain. Mm -hmm. And that's um, that. That study is actually very interesting because I think it's by far the longest, the most comprehensive, and it's they they've gotten the best data, and it's been done over you know because it's so long. There's multiple multiple researchers involved, so it's maybe when you have that many researchers, you get out get rid of more biases, right? In terms of the questions, in terms of the setup, they they just everyone has their biases, but when you have a lot more researchers involved in the study over time, they may even out or cancel out each other which is a very interesting um, concept. And that's, I know that that research that's been um, published recent, re recently, and they've been talking a lot about it in the, in the media world. And I, again, I, I think it's probably not, it shouldn't be a surprise to most of us, right? Because the, the members of the tribe that um, had the deepest connections seem to be the ones that flourished the most. I don't think that, you know, when you even look back at these philosophers, they were all very important figures in their society. Right. Um, whether or not they saw themselves as outsiders like Socrates, he was still a very important figure right in in the world of Athens. And that same with Plato and Aristotle. Right. And all of the philosophers we talk about, they had groups of people following them that they felt connected to. And they felt connected to their teachers. Right. Aristotle to Plato and Plato to Socrates. So there was an element of this connection over a lifetime that maybe that's and that's maybe when they wrote their ideas of this, they were sort of taking that for granted, right? They, they don't key on it as much as we do today because there were less of them and maybe they had those connections sort of inbuilt from both familial and tribal. And now we don't exist in as strong a familiar tribal world. We have nation states. Yeah. So we almost have to seek out our connections more intentionally today than they had to. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of us don't tend to privilege them anymore. You know, I think... There have been a few decades um, in the self-help, personal development world where self-realization was very much represented as an isolated enterprise of the individual. And it's all about honing your talents, your skills, and working on your specific areas that need optimizing. So, so I think the self-realization rhetoric was quite detached from um, that sense of connectedness and contributing and seeing yourself as a wider um, a part in, in a wider whole. And I think that's coming back now because people are quite quite fed up with that, you know, isolated individualist view of, of the human animal. And the ancient Greeks didn't didn't see themselves like that at all, as you said, Patrick. You know, they had a had a conception of us as as social and interrelated. 
and um I think that's also a reason why 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 many of the ancient philosophies are, are celebrating such a strong comeback right now. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think about that, how maybe one of the reasons they're coming back is because um, we've gone down the road of the, um, whatever you want to say, the monastic disciplines, right? The internally focused, I can do everything myself versus I'm actually part of this arc of human history. I'm part of this long story. And if I give back to this arc, it's sort of a more flourishing life. And I think it is definitely um, coming back. Part of it, you know, I, when I think about it, it's like, just because we say things like self-actualization, it feels like it's independent of others. But when you look at, you know, when people always talk about Maslow's hierarchy and how it builds on itself, most of the things in Maslow's hierarchy, you need other people for, right? Because you don't produce all your own food and your shelter and your safety because you actually need group dynamics. So it's like Maslow, that, that's what's interesting is you don't, when you look at the pyramid, it looks like your pyramid of advancement. I, all of those have to do with people except self-actualization. And I, maybe people just don't think that's the highest anymore, right? It's, it, it, maybe it's just, it's more almost the term of it doesn't really make sense in, in the, uh, our language, we we use it a lot. I don't think many people understand what it means. There's no release, right? That's and you and I talked about uh, this before. But in in Buddhism, the idea that there is this moment of release or some, an enlightenment, right? That you get you achieve a level, and now you're you're distinct from others because you've achieved enlightenment. Whereas on the when we're talking about the ancient wisdom from the Greeks and Romans, they didn't believe that you ever got separate from others. You didn't achieve enlightenment. It was a process. It was a virtue. You could teach others, but you were always struggling with it. You didn't one day wake up and you were enlightened and you walked out into the field and others, you were untouchable to others. You always struggled because the human condition is that. It's a little bit of a more, I mean, goes more towards my personality. It's a more realistic version in a way, right? Is that you're always striving and you may achieve higher excellence as Aristotle would say, but you never achieve release from the desires. You're always fighting the desires like we talked about. You're always in combatant over these um, excess desires or too little. And they, it's sort of the struggle is what they emphasized is the virtue itself. Whereas I, I think maybe we missed that for the last 30 years and a lot of development before. Yeah. Yeah. We think we can get there, you know, now we are self-realized. <laughs> now we have actually <laughs> expressed and also self-realization is often often linked up with self-expression, right? Um, but it can be it can take so many different forms. You know, it can take the form of creativity, but it can also take the form of altruism or of contributing, of serving, of um building something, of learning something. There's so many different forms, but we tend to kind of think of it in terms of like, oh, I need to creatively express express myself and um, leave something behind that I have I have uniquely created. Yeah, but I like I like your point about the um hierarchy actually requiring others and 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 you cannot do any of the basic um, steps on your own. That's that's very very true. Um, in terms of you know practical flourishing, what what are your methods, Patrick? What what's important to you? I mean, where do you get um, 
you know, a sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment. Well, I, you know, I think going back to Aristotle, um, you know, I, I know that's part of some of the things that he um, talked about was sort of ruling over your own desires, right? Which is something I think myself and all people work on, right? You want to sort of at least whatever you want to, um, you want to rein in elements of the passions, right? So that you don't over-index in certain areas of your life, which I think is something that over the, as you get older and over the decades, you get better at that. Um, and hopefully that's a sign of maturity or development. I would say that um, continuous learning also is an element to sort of Aristotle, right? Is that, that they see learning and whether it's not just skill acquisition or theoretical learning, but it's, you know, all of them combined along with learning about yourself is a good in itself. And that's something, again, if you're, you know, I think it's a term that a lot of people use today, but it's, it's a, I'm glad it came back into the lexicon as sort of a lifelong learner. You look at the people who are happy when they're older, they're people who are still reading, still engaged somewhat in the world, still talking to people about interesting ideas. And, you know, this medium in and of itself is something that's given, um, podcasting has given people an ability to access conversations for continuous lifelong learning. Um, and, you know, I think we all work towards, and myself being, you know, loved by others and respected by society for um, hopefully doing good things, right? Showing virtue in action. And for myself, you know, I think it's a combination of both um, doing service for others is a way to sort of get some of that um, um, beloved and respected, as well as just accomplishing things that, whether it's in employing people or, um, generating new ideas. You know, I think it's, it's similar. We can sort of where we get, and I feel like I'm extremely privileged in the sense is we still have to choose that some things we're going to worship or, or aspire to. It's just you and I, at this point in history, get to choose that more than anyone else ever in history. We get to choose what we aspire to and what we choose to worship. Be careful because you can make bad decisions but I think you and I both have the ability to focus on generative things or focus on the positive if we want to, whereas most of humanity's history has been in survival mode. And since we're not in survival mode, we have more volatility because we can choose maybe worse things, but we're both in, in a position where we can actually choose to probably um, look, look out more towards flourishing versus hedonism. The fact that we can even have this conversation over this incredible technology shows how um, amazing that our society has progressed. Everything else was done over letters. It wasn't a dialogue in and of itself, right? And now we have this ability, and I feel like we should always have a bit of gratitude for this arc of history, that we are where we are, right? Everyone sort of, I think, at, at points has, has felt that, but it's something that I try to do every day. I try to do some you know, gratitude journaling or gratitude um, acknowledgement every day because I think it's something that compounds that effect into the future. Because something someone did in the past gave us this ability to have this conversation today, and something you and I are laying today will give someone or your children the ability to have that in the future. So, mm. and what about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I I love facilitating insights. You know, I get real, real pleasure and a real sense of fulfillment from helping others 
understanding themselves better. I think that's, you know, I see myself very much as a kind of insights midwife. And and, and I, I think that for me is incredibly fulfilling to see people learn something about themselves and understand themselves. And like you, Patrick, I love learning. I, I really, really love learning new things and understanding new perspectives and, and, you know, thinking about matters in ways in which I hadn't thought before. I love new perspectives. Always curious about your perspectives. <laughs> and, um, and I also love parenting and creativity. I think creativity is one of my core values as well in the sense that I, I love writing and I love expressing myself in writing. And I hope that my writing is is an act of service as well to others. So I, I see that also as a kind of giving back and an act of communication. Um, and then, you know, and then, of course, you know, I love running and kickboxing and playing the piano. And that's where I get sort of slow moments. Um, and yeah, I guess the combination of eudaimonic and, and hedonic well-being in those areas. So I have a question for you, Anna, given that your um, first language is German. So there's, you know, I think, again, this is another word that has come back, you know, schadenfreude, right? Uh -huh. Which is sort of the yeah. delight in the misery of others. And it's a terrible word, but it's used, you know, um, in comedy. But I think a lot of people experience this, right? They like that, um, that there's a dark aspect to that. But what is the opposite word we could come up with? Ooh. Which is the light and the joy of others, mm -hmm. because both mm -hmm. things that you and I have said, and, you know, I, I think it's a strange concept by both of us. I, I find more joy in watching others experience joy than in myself. And that's just something that mm -hmm. I, you know, it's, it's something internal to me. Uh, I just wonder if there's a word we could come up with. That's the opposite of sh schadenfreude, <laughs> which is you, you enjoying your, your yeah. clients or your friends developing insight, or you enjoying your child experiencing something magical we should come up with a word that expresses that versus the misery because I, I i don't have i don't delight in the misery of other people at all I, I think it's a terrible thing to even think about whereas we don't have a word that describes the opposite yeah it's a very good point you know the idea that you actually get genuine pleasure from seeing other people thrive is there no word for that I can't think well, of one right now. You can come up with the German word as the opposite. Oh yeah, Schadenfreude. Since <laughs> everyone knows Schadenfreude, if you if we can come up with an opposite word, we can spread yeah. it around today because it's something yeah. that that yeah. more people I think feel the opposite. They, there's just no word for it. Yeah, flourishing pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but there's there has got to be something. I mean, we have, our language allows us to compound lots of different nouns together. I have to think about a good a good um, counterpart. That's my, that's my homework for you. Yeah, that's, my that's homework for homework. you for your creativity <laughs> is to develop a word in German that we can then bring into the English lexicon that expresses mm. this because it's something you saying that myself saying this, hearing a lot of other people that like to see other people succeed. It actually brings them pleasure, right? Being an assistant along the way. We don't have a word for it, which is very strange. Yeah. That we have yeah, a word for the opposite. It, yeah, we could call it Erfolgsfreude, you know, delighting in the success of others. 
Erfolgsfreude, oh, Erfolgsmitfreude, Erfolgsmitfreude, taking pleasure in other people's success. Yeah, good one. <laughs> And it's, it may right. also be, you know, something we, we just have to, I, I think a lot of uh, our Western listeners that aren't Germanic will have a hard time saying it. Schaden yeah. is enough, hard enough. If ropes, Freude. And I, yeah, I had, I, yeah. <laughs> we, we have to go to the marketing department to figure out, okay, we can take this word, we can compound it down into something that we can market because it definitely is a, a concept that I think a lot of people feel, but we don't know how to. And this is something I hear from a lot of parents, right? A lot of my yeah. friends who are parents, they delight so much in seeing their children perform and it gives an experience joy. Right, the happiest days of their life, or they they go through this host of things, but we don't have a word for it. It's strange, mm. and it's not just yeah. others. The, the feeling you get when you're a team that you care about, or an athlete you've invested in, or a singer you've invested in emotionally performs well, you have a great feeling of. It's not pride for yourself; it's for them. And there's a we all feel this whether you're at concerts and you see someone do an extraordinary live performance or a virtuoso of the violin or piano do something. Their skill exposed through their discipline makes you feel more this more this deeper connection, and yeah. it's something that I think we could probably bring back because we could all use that a little more connection across um, groups right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you just described, I, I think there's an altruistic dimension to it. You know, so there's obviously that connection to the concept of altruism, but there's also something about admiring excellence, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and just yeah. all our sort of think about you're, you're affecting history a hundred years from now. And that's that it is in the back of your mind that you're not thinking about every day. There's a, a component to that. And Like the best, the best time to plant a tree is 30 years ago. The second best time is today. Yeah, that's an expression absolutely. we have. But if all of these actions and pleasures are part of planting those trees, what well, the fact that we haven't developed the 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 corollary to Schadenfreude is something that I want to. Um, that's our mission to come up with, and then spread it around and have people. Yeah, just use and it. it's also such a such a shame that my language is associated with that kind of very base human emotion. <laughs> You know, there's also always something a bit passive aggressive about choosing a particular. But the, but Germans, I don't think have as much the, the Schadenfreude as the English, because of the class system is stronger in England. Yeah. So they have more yeah. Schadenfreude in their in their in their comedy and in their culture. It's more. Yeah. It's just the word they took out because you, you because you can compound two words. They can't do that. You'd have to say delight in the misery of others. It doesn't have the yeah. same nearly as catchy as Schadenfreude, right? It's so actually, you, it's interesting because it's it's an ancient, again, that's an ancient concept, right? If you see the fall of a hero in a Greek tragedy, there's something, yeah. I mean, it's tragic, but there's yeah. some pleasure in that, you know, to see someone falling from great height the great man because fall. of a very human fall, flaw, you know, because of... Um, because of some character weakness. So even the ancient Greeks already wrote about that. And, you know, in the English tabloids, of course, love stories about celebrities falling from grace and disgracing themselves. They don't talk about the public, average you know. person doing well or the average person falling. No, it's extremely it's the, the big ones, you know? Yeah. yeah. Whereas, and, and I think 
but the healthier expression is a little bit, you know, what we, what we should desire is understanding humans are flawed. They're going to fall, have empathy for them when they do, but also what I would say societally punish them, they do something badly, but you have empathy, understanding, but we should also delight in their upswing. And that's the thing is, I don't think we have, and that's something I want to, you know, if we're part of this greater humanity, which the Stoics believed as well as Aristotle and Plato, we, we should delight both in their rise and then in their fall, we shouldn't not expect that humans are flawed. We make bad decisions, but that should give us empathy to them, not delight. Right. Yeah. And I, it's, it's funny that we just, it, it maybe is a, it's symptomatic of the human condition, right? That we don't have the word for the opposite. Very true. But yeah. we can come up with it. Pleasure because, in seeing people rise yeah. rather than pleasure but, in seeing people but you, fall. But, but you, we all have it. We just want the word for it. Because we have it, yeah. And parents have a lot it. Of parents, they, they say the, the pride they mm -hmm. feel, the, the happiness they feel. All parents say this. We don't have the word, but we have the word for the other side, which is strange. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. especially in, in this culture today. That's across, you know, we take we take words across languages, right? So, yeah, you, you have to talk. You'll talk to some German friends about coming up with the. I you have will, to save, have to save I, the I Germanic side. You have to give them something. Well, if you th think about mm -hmm. like um, the the words, which are beautifully sung, but in Beethoven's ninth, right, the final choral is all about humanity being one. But people don't think they don't associate that. that that's that. That's German. They don't associate that with German, mm -hmm. right? That's what they were talking about. And yeah, why? That's what. That's it's almost. The, we're all one meaning the good and the bad. So you have to delight. If you're going to delight in the bad, which that may be something like you say, it's it's inherent to our um, both movies as well as our tragedies as well as plays, where there's always an element to that, the great man falling. Mm -hmm. But there's redemption too. We believe in redemption and we believe in sort of enjoying the rise. It's just something that I wish we could spread around so kids can say it in a word, right? They yeah. can use yeah. it in a... Yeah. Like if I was, if I say my core value is this word, one of my values is I like to see others succeed because it doesn't, I don't feel it takes away from me. There are people who don't, right? I struggle this, um, you know, with my father because he, he would sometimes see like his subordinates going on. He wouldn't necessarily laud their achievements. And I tried to explain to him, you do understand those accrue to you too, like Right. When, when you train someone yeah. and they go do better than you, it actually shows how good you are at training. It doesn't take away from you if you're if you're if your peers who are below you that you trained do better than you. It actually is a good thing for you in the in the, in the arc of life, because guess what? You're yeah. an, you are a component of their success, not uh, they don't they're not competing against you. Mm. You're competing against you. <laughs> and it's it's about it's about kind of being a catalyst. And it's about being a developmental agent, right? I mean, there's something about that and getting great pleasure from that. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking, as you were speaking about Snow White, you know, the Brothers Grimm's fairy tale about the evil stepmother who couldn't bear her stepdaughter overtaking her in terms of beauty and youth, right? And who mm -hmm. kind of tried to pervert the whole yeah. developmental process by killing her off um, because she just could not get pleasure in, in seeing someone 
rise and shine and eventually evil. outshine. Yeah. And you know it's evil, right? And she we know it's evil. I mean, she's, pun- she's punished. Yeah, yeah she's pu- she gets punished horribly for for that um, attempt to repress natural development and the natural cause of of flourishing in in someone because mm-hmm. she's obviously um, her core failing is is envy. Um, but I was just thinking of that. Wow. You know, there, there are lots of stories about that, but there is no word. You're quite right. There's and we no... should. We should bring it in because be, just because of the, I've seen people talk about Schadenfreude, right? And so it's a word that yeah. is now back in the cultural lexicon. What about something that we can take that can sort of counteract it? Because yeah. um, nobody would say one of their core <laughs> values is shot at Freud, right? Like that may just be something that's in humanity, right? Like it's in sort of, but if we want to, you know, focus on our virtues, what is that virtue that is not only desiring honor for ourselves and respect, but also enjoying the honor of others. And that's something that maybe, and 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 the other thing is, is maybe the, um, the Greeks took it for granted. They were taught, they were in smaller groups, right? There wasn't as much. I think, I, I don't think Plato was mad that Aristotle did well. Socrates wasn't mad Plato did well. They sort of took that for granted. You're my student, of course. Why don't we have a word for it though? But I mean, it, it, it's also very classist in the sense, these were all very rich white men sitting around in a group, right? So they, have, they might've have taken, like, we're, we're a member of this elite class anyways, right? Whereas I think yeah. now, because the world has become so much more diverse, we have to come up with something new to explain that to people that I can actually delight not only in someone like me, but if there's in you know an African philosopher today being born who's going to rise up, I should delight in him. Right? It doesn't necessarily need to be my tribe or my group, like of, of this small. You could actually look outside yourself to larger, and that's mm-hmm. it's a concept. Maybe we should elaborate on, but maybe we should think about because I hadn't really. Um, thought of it prior to this. I, it was just as we were talking, I was thinking about yeah. I hear so many people say that. And I hear it from businessmen and I hear it from teachers and I hear I hear it from everyone. But we don't have a good way to describe it in, yeah. in terms of a core Something value. Like, yeah. Developmental delight, you yeah. know? Delight in developing. Yeah. That, that's, it's, it's such a great idea. But I guess it's also because we're so competitive these days, right? I mean hyper-individualist competitiveness probably has something to do with why that has actually, um, why altruism doesn't feature so highly on our list of virtues anymore. But here's the thing, Anna, which is strange. I don't think it takes away from competitiveness. If you and I are trained together running and you are a worse runner, we're training, we run a race against each other and I run as hard as I can and you beat me. I'm going to be mad I lost, but I can also be happy you're one simultaneously. Mm. And this is something I want you to think about. This is a corollary to this is we, we respect the fighters that hug at the end of the match. True. Our society does. We don't respect the guy who puts his head down, pouts and leaves the two fighters who just tried to kill each other. And by the way, if they kill the other person, they win the fight actually. So just crazy. Like in an MMA fight, if I hit you and broke your neck, you actually win the fight. You, you don't lose, right? Unless it was an illegal hit. So a minute before, you were trying to kill each other. Now you hug one another. We respect those people. Why? You're, 
you're acknowledging the person beat you. You gave it your all. They gave it your all. But why? I think that there's something. There, there's also a part of which was is like we respect the athletes who cross the field at the end of the game and shake each other's hands. So there's an element to delight to saying you beat me today, but I actually have some component of we without me you couldn't play the game. So the most hyper competitive people in the world post competition aren't competitive. What is mm-hmm. that? Like what well, we don't we don't have a word for it, but it's strange that we don't respect the athlete who walks out and says I'm never you know. I got screwed by the refs or whatever, whatever it is. We don't respect yeah, well, that. Well, I think that they're, they're called sore losers. <laughs> yeah. But why think about that? We have a term for sore yeah. loser, but we don't have a term like a, a gracious winner or that that's one thing. But what about the loser who's, who gave it his all competed to the best of his ability, but a, he may just be, he just may have gotten older, but he still has a lot to give. He can actually delight in the, the field of conflict, the other person won, but it was still excellence and conflict. See, the Greeks would say it's still excellence and expression. Winning is yeah. an excellence. Excellence is excellence. Winning is an outcome that you don't have control over. You giving your yeah. all, this is what this is what you know Lombardi talked about is winning isn't everything, but the desire to win is. Training to win is more important than winning. Because you can't determine if you win, but you yeah. can determine how much effort you put forth, right? That's one of the great things you learn from sport is that you, if you tie it to the scoreboard, you could probably be a, a miserable person, but if you tie it to the training and the outcome and the, and the amount of effort you put in, you own your effort. You slept in, you trained, right. You put it all, you still may lose, but we respect this. We don't have a word for it. And mm-hmm. I, it's interesting. Cause when you look at people, when people talk about their values, a lot of people would say that would be one of their values. But yeah, how do but we actually... I think it is it is it is kind of on the I was just thinking of the values and action character survey. It's probably appreciation of excellence. You know. Mm-hmm. That that is that is a value that you just appreciate and really admire skill. Even if you know, even if you lose in a competition, you can just say, Hey, I admire your skills. I'm happy to I, to have lost against someone so skillful. Yeah. Someone who's expressing excellence, right? You're both yeah. expressing it. And that's yeah. a, but I would like to have a, something that's just catchy. Yeah. Right. Like I would like to have something that's, that people could, if, if I said your, if your core values are creativity and independence, reliability, you couldn't say, well, appreciation of skill, that it doesn't really mean the same. Mm-hmm. And, right. And it's also two components is one is I may appreciate the comp- competition we have, but it's also appreciating someone that you're investing in like your child and how they develop the, that appreciation and joy. There's, multiple components of this that I think we could, we could probably elaborate on. It could be interesting for people. Yeah, absolutely. Because I I just feel a lot of people feel that they just don't know how to say it. Yeah. It's why people become teachers, why people become coaches. 